0: Well, welcome again to our study in the book of Revelation that we're calling Rediscover Jesus Through Revelation. Today, we're going to launch into chapters 6 and 7 and the first part of chapter 8 as we uh, turn our attention to what have been called uh, the, the septets. And in this case, we'll spend some time looking at the seven seals. Ultimately, we want to take away from these chapters something about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we'll be looking at clues that we can discover in these chapters about uh, the lives of those uh, first century Christians. Again, as I have been for the past few weeks, I'm joined by Dr. Donald Patrick Harris and Dr. David D. Pfizer. Hey, guys, it's great to be back together again to talk about this fantastic book.
1: Thank you. I agree.
0: Well, let's let's get right into this. Um, boy, we're, we're met again with some fantastic images in uh, the Chapter 6, just as we were met uh, with some images in Chapters 4 and 5 with the living creatures and uh, with their six wings and their multiple eyes and so on. In Chapter 6, we're introduced to uh, uh, additional imagery, but before we get to that, let's spend some time talking about these septids. What do we mean when we're using that term septet?
2: Well, we're talking about the three cycles of seven of judgments that kind of run through the majority of the book of Revelation. And in the first set of seven, we have the seals. In the second set, we have trumpets that are blown by angels and then lastly we have a set of seven bowls which are poured out and um, each of these represents particular visions and uh in the majority of their case cases they uh are judgments upon the earth upon humanity particularly rebellious humanity
0: so we have these sets of septets now there have been and and there will be uh, some who will include the seven churches in that grouping of of septets um uh and and it's one way in which people will address the book of revelation um don what might you add to our understanding of the septets
3: well one we know that john was very fond of the number 7 lucky 7 so uh, that's what we associate it with, but that 's not what they associated it with. This is the word this is the number for perfection and this goes back to uh, a much earlier podcast that we had when we talked about the use of imagery, the use of symbols, and the use of numbers in our interpretation of revelation and so here we get right into it and so what is perfected here? in this section uh, with these septets, and I would propose that uh, we have God's perfect judgment, God's complete judgment that is going to be poured out. I'd like to know what the rest of you think about that, but that's an uh, an initial starting point for me.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do see uh, God's judgment, but um, perhaps we see even more than that. Don't we see the completion of His mission, as well as we uh look at some of the parallels particularly with the this the seventh of the seals the trumpets and the bowls uh that is seeming to declare uh, something that's been completed um, in in regards to god's mission Mm
1: -hmm. i think one of the things to keep in mind is again
2: going back to how we interpret revelation as a whole will impact how we interpret these septets. Um, one school of thought holds that in a, in linear fashion, in a chronological fashion, uh, each of these septets occurs one after the other. And uh, if I remember correctly, this is during the uh, tribulation period, uh, the first what, three and a half years or something along those lines. Um, however, that is a relatively recent innovation in biblical thought and interpretation. That, that is not a historical position held by the church until uh, it came on the scene in the 18th century, or 19th century, I should say. Uh, to that point, I think there was a general agreement that these septets were perspectives and expressions of the same event between the times of Christ's two comings. And so what we have here is, uh, I guess, in more contemporary parlance, uh, the camera shifts perspectives and locations, but it is all looking at the same event, just from different angles. Um, almost like an artsy film, if you will. Uh, so we get these different takes, but they are all expressions of both God's judgment against rebellious humanity, but also his bringing to completion, his plan for his church, the elect.
0: Yeah. That, I, I mean, uh, I think that, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. David, um because we're we're uh, we've kind of taken the position that we're not looking at Revelation chronologically, and uh, and when we do, we get into or, or when people have looked at it chronologically, they, they get into some issues with interpretation that just simply doesn't seem to fit with the the period of time. And Don, as you continually remind us, Revelation cannot mean what it did not mean to uh, those first readers. so we really want to dive into this in terms of how the first century church would have thought of this um, it, it does feel at times uncomfortable for us as Westerners who think in a linear fashion that, uh, that we think in terms of history and and uh, and time to put ourselves in a position with John who really is writing almost from outside of time uh, he, he's been taken up into heaven and been given this vision that isn't necessarily uh, fitting for a time of, of, of uh, chronological time.
3: I would say that is probably the one place where I still find myself really struggling. I, I struggle because I tend to think in a linear fashion. Yeah. So I get hung up on this linear progression idea because I just naturally want to go there. Our culture focuses on storytelling that primarily uh, takes you through a series that you expect to hear. Uh, But I think we're going to see that there's something different here, both in the culture and in this book. In all fairness, I mean...
2: Both that's the way we are trained to learn, and God has clearly presented the unfolding of history
1: in a linear fashion. Um, we are told that uh, man will die once
2: and be judged that there is no reincarnation that the wheel doesn't keep going around and round you know the wheels on the bus go round and round no um. The whole of scripture is to be understood linearly. We have a beginning. We have an end. Jesus himself declares that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So I I don't think that that is your problem alone, Don. And I think in many ways, we've been conditioned to read scripture that way. Revelation is such a unique uh, animal, if you will. Uh, because it it does combine so many different genres, uh, but then it does this uh, repetition of the septets, and so I think as Jesus said to the seven churches, uh, "Let him who has ears to hear, hear." We we need to be attentive, and we also need to be relying on the Holy Spirit for uh, both interpretation, understanding as well as application. And and I don't mean to throw mud at those of other schools of thought that disagree with what we're saying. Uh, not to say that they're not operating under the Holy spirit, uh, but under some unclean spirit. But it, I think we need to take our clues from within the text rather than import them from our
3: context and contemporary events. Mm-hmm. I read something helpful from J. Ramsey Michaels in this book that I introduced early on in our podcast, and it was very helpful to me in that he says that when we read, we look more for progression. We look more for a linear format, but Mm -hmm. he did say that if we listen, we would not be that tuned into progression. We would just be sort of caught up in the story. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's a good reminder that this would be a great book uh, that is the revelation Would is a great book just to listen to, because this is how the first generation that received it would have heard it. Most mm-hmm. of them would not sit down with their personal copy of a papyrus or a parchment and read. They would hear it in the assembly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and wasn't that a part of the blessing that John promised in chapter one? Uh, for those who hear uh, the the book. Uh, um, Good, good. Well, some good uh, general uh, observations of of the Septets that I think are important for us. I'm wondering, as you you two were speaking, if uh, the, the four Gospels are somewhat analogous to what we're talking about, where we have uh, th- th- granted, uh, th- th- it's chronological in terms of each gospel is is uh, portraying the history of Jesus in his ministry on earth, but they take different tacts and they amplify in different places, especially the Gospel of John, which is so unique to the four. So we have uh, four descriptions of the same person mm-hmm. in much the same way that uh, we see in these septets, uh three descriptions of. Uh, the same events that, uh, that John is is seeing.
3: It's certainly analogous.
0: Well, let's dive in a little bit more deeply then into um, our understanding of the septets, and uh, to think in terms of general characteristics or general observations that we see uh, in these septets.
2: You know, in comparison to what we've looked at so far, uh, particularly regarding the the seven letters. Uh, they're oriented in like a, a three, four model where you, you kind of come to the first three and then you go to the, the next four. The uh, three septets are organized almost reverse where the first four seem more interconnected and the last three kind of wrap things up. <clears throat> um, and And that seems to be the case with all three septets, it's not just the first one, which is probably the more obvious one for reasons we'll explore shortly. But um, again, it is not getting caught up in the specific image, but understanding that the images, the imagery is representative of something that has been ongoing since the time of Christ's ascension. Mm-hmm. will be concluded by a very obvious and uh unmistakable
3: manner another observation that uh, flows with what you're saying, David, is that the first four uh happened on earth uh, to the people who were on the earth yes uh, so the last three have more of a a cosmological or certainly a celestial uh, setting. And so those are obvious differences, the first four on earth, the the last three uh, in heaven. So that's a good observation to put those things together.
0: What we see in those first four, it seems uh, to me, at least as I read through those septets, are things that are similar. They're not exactly one-to-one parallels, but certainly similar. In Regards to the turmoil that will be experienced uh, on earth um, it, it's it's uh, it, You know, we read about war uh, political turmoil uh, we're reading about economic turmoil and societal turmoil That throws everything kind of wacky that leads to um, those final uh, three seals or, or trumpets or bowls, uh, Don, that you were talking about, were more cosmological?
3: I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of what would the original hearers have thought when they heard this. And it would have sounded familiar to them uh, because of uh, Ezekiel, because of Zechariah, and even early Christians who had already read and perhaps were familiar with Jesus' Olivet discourse, his uh, discourse about when is the uh, end going to come, and you know what is it going to be like. So I think we're we can be more grounded in our observations and our interpretation by. Understanding the Old Testament background, and then even the, uh, particularly the synoptic parallels that have to do uh,
1: with the end of the age. Yeah, we we've said it before. I think that uh, you really
2: have to have an understanding of the Old Testament and how John was being inspired directly or indirectly or both to see and then write down images that for those first century believers would likely have brought that kind of, uh, understanding forward, uh, judgment in general, disease, um, uh, war, as you said, um, Pestilence and economic ruin, uh, judgment against God's enemies for what they did to God's peoples. I think that's uh, Zechariah 6. But uh, it's not that we can't possibly come to a conclusion, but the more we're familiar with the source of the imagery, I think the greater likelihood for a better interpretation.
0: The, the purpose behind uh, these pestilence these this turmoil it, it seems to me that you know knowing who God is as a missionary god the the missiological nature that we're seeing in the book of revelation as, as well as the theocentric the doxological that we've been talking about it seems to me that there uh is evidence that God is doing these things in order to get the attention of people um yes it is a judgment but it's not a judgment in terms of its finality. He, he still desires to be in relationship with people. And uh, we see expressions of this, uh, particularly in this uh, first set of sevens, uh, when those who are, um, uh, who, who are experiencing God's judgment are aware of who he is and uh, his holiness. And they're fearful of that, and um, you almost get a sense as well that there is a point that people might still be repentant and, and turn to him. Mm-hmm. Well, so some eschatological hope, even in the times of turmoil, mm-hmm.
1: I, I think that's
3: very much the case that uh, this, this is judgment, but it's not judgment in the sense that uh, God's nature is to be cruel. Um, This is actually in keeping with God's covenant with Israel, and I don't think that this was lost on the original audience, is that the things that happen on earth in the first four seals are very clearly things that flowed out of the breaking of the covenant uh, with God. You know, there would be war, there would be famine, uh, rain was withheld, there were... Uh, terrible things that happened in society, but there were terrible things that happened in nature as well, all as a consequence of breaking God's covenant. So I I don't think that's lost, and I don't think it was lost even on the pagans. Uh, One of the uh, aspects of paganism was their devotion to uh, sacrificing to the gods for rain and for crops and uh, Mm -hmm. what we would call the fertility cults. Uh, and the way we refer to them. So, all of this is familiar language that's going to be much more um, uh understood and received than it is for us today. Mm-hmm. And again, because we've had so many bizarre in- interpretations, uh, that's where we tend to go first because this language seems bizarre to us. Mm-hmm. But uh it's much more familiar to them, and so the closer we can get to that source, the better we can understand what they understood, and then, of course, make better application to our own lives today.
2: in terms of judging the particular or specific fallout from each of these judgments as they they go through the motions, um,
1: you know we have to understand, perhaps step back even. And think that every single one of us was in rebellion against God. And so
2: none of us deserves God's mercy, God's grace. Uh, None of us is, is begging for God to forgive us and have mercy on us in and of ourselves. And so God's judgment is right. It is just. And so, I mean, this kind of, it's offensive to our contemporary ears because we we think of ourselves as so enlightened and, and modern, to take that word really out of context. But um, the fact that people will die in the course of the pouring out of these judgments, the course of the seals being broken and the trumpets being sounded and the bowls being poured out, is not... As you said, Michael, it's not an ascription of cruelty and, and, and terribleness to God's character. It is, in fact, the ascription of God being faithful to his word and to himself. And so these judgments have been, in a sense,
1: predicted since the beginning and are predicated on the historical
2: an ongoing rebelliousness of people against God's rule. And of course, we see that most summed up in Jesus's uh, being arrested in the middle of the night and being beaten and tried in a kangaroo court and then being put to death uh, unjustly by the Romans on behalf of the the Jewish uh, religious authorities. I mean, it doesn't get any more stark of a contrast than that. And so the fact that God has waited at least this long to our own day and age and perhaps well beyond it is a a statement of God's patience uh, because he wants to see people come to repentance. Uh, But it's also, you know, there's, this is a double edged sword. It cuts both ways. And it makes me think of God's words to Abraham essentially explaining to him why he was not going to take possession of the promised land, at that time it's because the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its fullness. And as we'll see, uh, in the fifth or sixth seal, yeah, the fifth seal, uh, that the, the number of martyrs has not yet reached its fullness. So there there's a play on time and fullness and, uh, things being at the right time before God acts. And and that's a scary thing because that's nothing we can really determine for ourselves. We can't watch a a clock and say, Oh, here it comes. Uh, But instead we are to live like faithful servants who are constantly about their master's work so that when the master returns, he's not going to find us lollygagging and enjoying uh, his largest here on earth.
3: I would also like to note that there are two Recipients or two audiences in these seven seals. Uh, One Mm -hmm. is mankind generally on the earth, uh, but then also among them are Christians. Mm -hmm. And so, what is happening here for the one group who is um, in rebellion against God, for those who are idolaters, that is, they worship themselves and other things and other creatures, it is a judgment. It's an excoriating judgment, but for those Christians who are living and also caught up in that, for them it is a purifying. For them, you know, they're not being punished along with the world. They are being purified to stand out and apart from the world. And I'll add that's not my original thought. I'd like to attribute that to G.K. Beale, who who makes that point. Uh, so that we can see these two different audiences receive the same circumstances, but with totally different mentalities and responses.
0: Well, we move then from uh, some of our general observations of these septets to uh, the the more specific uh, first set of seven in the seven seals that we meet in in Revelation chapter 6. What are and again, we're looking at some imagery here that might be peculiar to us uh, That certainly was familiar in terms of the first century um, As we meet these four uh, Apparently nefarious figures of the horsemen Um, Let's talk about that a bit. What do you all see in these four horsemen?
2: Well, these are probably the most readily recognized characters in all of Revelation. I mean, I think quite a few people in our day and age, at least in the Western world, have heard of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and and they've shown up in many ways, culturally speaking. I mean, I think uh, the the, the Rams, the LA Rams of the 60s or St. Louis Rams of the 60s maybe, uh, had the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse on their defense. They were so good, um but you know we have each with the first four seals broken, a new uh, horseman comes out called forth by one of the cherubim and and uh each is given a specific purpose a, a specific punishment to mete out on the world, and it's not that it's a one and done kind of thing it's it's almost like they're introduced and then kind of let loose to do their thing throughout history.
0: Yeah, let me, this is, I I appreciate that so much, David. Um, Let me interject here with a thought, because as you guys were talking just a moment ago, I I started thinking, boy, how much of this, yes, it does reveal God's judgment, but how much of this really is revealing the human penchant for these types of things, for going to war, for uh, economic uh, uh, fighting, um, for societal upheaval—I mean, how much of that really is a part of just our human nature, uh, where we will suffer from those um, uh, those types of effects that we that we're reading, particularly with these four horsemen.
2: Well, we tend to reduce sin. At least in our own day and age, we we tend to reduce sin to moral categories of our choosing, right? Uh, so whatever we find the most offensive is sin, and whatever we do, maybe we're not exactly proud of, but you know, we we come up with excuses for that. But in this particular case, these these first four seals are representative of things that could, as you're suggesting. Uh, really expose the human heart in the fullness of its fallenness. Uh, We see things, uh, you know, the curse of Adam is that the ground will be difficult to farm, uh, that the work of our hands will be hard. We will not easily and readily uh, bring forth the fruit from the ground, so to speak. Uh, War, we see that illustrated in Genesis 4 where brother kills brother, Cain and Abel. And, uh, you know, all these things make an appearance throughout the Old Testament and into the new. Uh and in a sense, they describe the the hard parts of human history.
0: You know, when I read these, that's the sense that I get uh, that we're reading descriptions of human history. And don't mm-hmm. we see these re- repeated um, and not so much that history is repeating itself as much as we're realizing that we as human beings haven't really changed. Um, it, we continue to do the same things. Sure. There, there's the moral so,
2: perfection here, right?
0: Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and we're going to continue to experience the the same results from mm-hmm. uh, the things that we've done. Right.
1: I think the difficulty is the magnitude, and when we think of that, um,
2: you know, we, we tend to think of these seals and, and judgments and such happening on a global basis, and I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Um, you know, they happen in certain parts of the world at certain times in history uh and and i think virtually every continent save for perhaps uh antarctica as far as we know ha- has felt the the judgment of god in in these ways wherever people congregate and and build cities towns and uh civilizations these things eventually find their way into happening not because of anything else but because of our fallen nature.
0: Reminds me of Romans 1. Um, yes. You know, the progression of our sinfulness and uh, and ultimately the end result of that is our right. sin. And, and even there, um,
2: later on in that chapter, part of the problem is that the, the judgment of God upon peoples is because the peoples are neither acknowledging God as God nor thanking him for the provision of all things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Again, this this constant turn to idolatry. The the our hearts are curved in on themselves. We want what we want, not what God wants.
0: Mm-hmm. And and it's uh and it's universal, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, look at Romans one. You can't read Romans one without reading Romans two. And and uh, Paul kind of turns the the finger to the church that you are doing these same things and so there's a real danger even among those of us who would uh, align ourselves with christ that we can't be susceptible because of our human nature to these same conditions
2: it's a it's a jewish and a gentile problem Mm. You know, of course, Romans is great because the Jews want to think the Gentiles are to blame for all the problems in the church, and of course, the Gentiles are saying, "No, oh, it's you guys," and Paul's like, "No, you're both damned, so let's look at Jesus
0: all right, so we look at these four horsemen and uh, the the things that are going on with them um and uh they, what is it that we're seeing here?
3: So what do we see in the uh first horse? We see a yeah. white horse, uh but but what does that mean? That's the big question, right? That's the
0: big question. Yeah, so four horses, right? We have a white one, a red one, a black one, and a pale one. Um, but what what do we see with this white horse?
3: Well, we see the white horse again, but I think it's a different personage on the horse.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, uh, this has variously, variously been interpreted as uh, an antichrist figure, Uh, Others uh, see this as civil war, uh, but Mm -hmm. it's conquering and to conquer, and it doesn't seem good and it doesn't seem positive. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: So whether it's war generally or civil war, I I know that gets us into the second seal because it's also uh, variously interpreted in a similar fashion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's Let's say ye
0: yeah well i that uh, yeah what say you, all of us um you know it's interesting that, that and I'll make mention of him uh continually uh, but the first commentary written on revelation was written by a bishop in uh uh in, in the third century in two sixty a d Victorinus writes his commentary on the apocalypse of the blessed John, and as he looks at this first first horseman, he takes a different position um than what has been more recent in uh it, those positions that others have taken and victorina sees this as representative of of believers that uh, they are on the white horse uh the, the bow representing a covenant uh that, that god has made and the conquer and to to conquer into uh to continue to conquer is the spread of the gospel uh, Now, many, of course, uh, since his time, uh, look at this very differently, um, as you alluded to, Don, as this being a representative of some type of the Antichrist figure. And we have to remind ourselves that the word Antichrist, of course, isn't in in Revelation at all. But it's some figure that seems to be opposed to uh, the the people of God, uh, and if not God himself. Interestingly enough, the reference to a bow uh, might give some clue to who this figure could be. Uh, Some have suggested that this is representative of uh, the cult of Apollo, who is often found with a bow. Um, It seems to me that if we were to go that route, it would be more, more representative of Artemis, who was the goddess of the hunt um who was known uh in in uh, Greek mythology of of being quite an archer um so so again here's one of those kind of interpretive things that we wrestle with is what would the first century believers have understood by this figure
2: i think one thing to to recognize and being sensitive to what you just said, Michael, that there's a lot of theories out there. Um, I think the bow from the various sources that I've looked at. uh, One suggestion is that the bow is representative of the threat of the Parthians Mm -hmm. to the East of the empire. And of course uh, Asia minor was one of the furthest points, furthest Eastern parts of the Roman empire at that time. And, uh, you know, some people have interpreted the rider as Jesus himself because it's a white horse. You know, and good guys wear white, uh, at least until uh, Chuck Norris came along and filmed that great movie, Good Guys Wear Black. But um, the fact that the term for crown is different, I don't think is accidental. I don't think it's John's attempt to try to utilize a wider vocabulary. Uh, Jesus is wearing a diadem. And uh, what's the term? Stephanus is the term used to describe the crown. (laughs) Let me start over again. The crown worn by the white rider. Uh, So there are little details that I think it's fair to say are keys in distinguishing that this rider is not Jesus. whether the rider is representative of a specific threat to the church or a threat in general to the Roman empire. I think there's some, some leeway uh, or allowances for differences of opinion, but the bottom line is this rider is going to bring a whole lot of trouble
1: on pagans and church alike. I I wonder if this is too simple. uh
3: And interpretation or identification, but what would the first thought of the Christian be who was hearing this? Would they not think of Rome and the extension of power and authority in league, even with their local authorities in Asia, the rising cult of the emperor combined with the paganism also? In Asia Minor, so that their natural first thought might be the ever encroaching and increasing power and authority of Rome uh, around them and over them.
2: And and that well could be Don, because you know there there's kind of the weird juxtaposition that the, the Pax Romana was anything but that for people who disagreed with Rome. Uh, And certainly we see in Jesus's fate at the hands of Pilate and the Roman soldiers, um, their attempt to maintain the peace of Rome at whatever cost possible. So, I mean, that is a certainly uh, certainly a possible interpretation as to the identity of the rider.
0: And and this kind of gets to um, some of the issues in regards to dating of revelation um if Mm -hmm. we were taking a position like i've taken uh for an early date of revelation it would seem more natural that if this were some uh figure uh antithetical to christianity that this would be more representative of a a god like apollo or goddess like artemis um David, you brought up an interesting observation that I just missed completely. Um, but it uh, perhaps bears some, some uh, at least a brief mention, um, the, the word crown, uh, Stephanos, in the Greek in Revelation 6-2. It's the mm-hmm. same word that Paul uses uh, that for himself, that a crown of righteousness mm-hmm. has been laid up for him. And so that might give a little bit more weight to an interpretation such as Victor Anus, who sees this as representative of the the spread, the proclamation of the gospel, going out to conquer.
1: Except this is a judgment. And so that doesn't seem to fit.
0: If it is. um, Yeah. And and again, what I'm trying to do here is not... to be contrarian to what uh, scholars are looking at here, but to uh, the, to weigh all the possible uh, considerations uh, as well. Um, it can be a judgment and uh, and certainly that's the view of many. It, it is interesting to me that Victorinus didn't look at this first writer as a judgment, um, but rather um, as 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 I've said, as uh, the proclamation of the gospel going forward. Now, for him, um, we have to also realize that he is understanding um, the whole of of revelation and the the whole idea perhaps of the millennial reign of Christ as being in the present. It's happening now, and mm-hmm. so he's in, he's reading this as. Uh, as something that's going on, that they're living through in in the moment.
2: I I would lean towards what Don is suggesting. Um, You know, I I didn't know Victor Ines, but I hear he was a good guy. But uh, all things being equal, the imagery of the white rider riding out as a conqueror bent on conquest Um seems a little too militaristic of a, and and a juxtaposition with what comes at the, uh, the fifth seal. Mm. So taken within the context of all the seals, it just seems a little too abrupt
1: a turn or change. Um, Again, I don't think any of us has the, the
2: correct answer on this specific thing, but I'm just trying to go by the clues, uh, and the consistency of these things. So I, I, I would humbly disagree with, uh, Bishop Victorinus on that point.
0: Yeah. And certainly the, the writer having a bow would, would lend more credence to this being uh, a part of that judgment. You, mm-hmm. you would, you would think of this word, the church going forward, that the writer would have a sword uh, representing the word of God, for example. Mm-hmm.
3: Right. And again, let's keep in mind the Old Testament parallels. Um, Ezekiel 14, Zechariah chapter 6, even again, the synoptic uh, accounts of, you know, what will when will the end come, and what are the signs of the age? You know, and I and I think what we have here in chapters, uh, well, with the the first septet of the seals, is that we have the groundwork
1: being laid uh, for what is to follow. Um. Well, what do we agree on here? Uh,
3: do we agree that um, this does not seem like good news,
1: but bad news? Depending on who you are, I guess, huh?
2: Well, I I don't think it's going to be a day in the park for the church. Um, again, another word that does not show up in Revelation, but it seems to be more frequently imported is the rapture. Uh, the church does not get a pass from this, mm. and so all these judgments that are coming down on all the earth, upon you know, their judgments upon. Uh, rebellious humanity, the church is going to experience to some degree. And and Don, as you said, it is a a refining. Uh, It may even be a form of discipline for the church. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how many Christians do we know, present company excluded, of course, where there is some degree of compromise, and the Lord is using all these things to uh, discipline and refine us, to make us more holy, to conform us to the image of Christ. And um, is it the author of Hebrews who says, you know, discipline didn't seem pleasant in the moment, but we know that it serves a a bigger, better purpose. Mm. Mm. That's my translation.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, this is a complex one, and I'm, I'm, I do not know where to land on this, to be perfectly honest. Because Don, I see, you know, I see your reference to the Synoptics, and I'm reminded of Matthew twenty four fourteen, and this is what Victorinus appeals to: that uh, the gospel will go forward into all the world, mm-hmm. and and then the end will come. And so, for him, as he looked at this passage, this was this was the beginning of that. The gospel mm-hmm. is going forward to all the world, and now the end is going to come. And uh and so he saw that. And so I think there's, you know, I, I there's a romantic idea, I suppose, in this, uh, the notion that the church is conquering, that the gospel is conquering throughout the world, um, that uh the, the white writer is a good person, uh, is the missionary, is the Christian living out the faithful life and proclamation of the gospel. Um that that is attractive to me as I look at this But at the same time uh thinking in terms of the first century in that context um, and the allusion of course to to the old testament, which um, Is interesting as well because the the Zechariah reference in chapter six uh, it says in reference to that white horse then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be something uh, promising about this white horse um, as it's going forward uh, in this context. But th- that being said, um, gosh, are you allowed to take a pass on on uh, an interpretation and, and uh, wait until w- we have more, uh, insight?
2: I think we, we certainly see. can, but I, I also think, you know, look at the, the saints under the altar who we will finally get to someday, um, that they are wondering how long Lord, you know, so mm-hmm. clearly there's kind of this, I don't want to call it impatience because they're in heaven with the Lord. And I think of impatience as sin, but, uh, there's this element of you know, we, we are waiting for your vindication. Yeah. And I think of, uh, you you know, you're you're thinking of Victorinus, I'm thinking of Tertullian and the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church that Mm -hmm. even as the church experienced and experiences even to this day, martyrdom in terms of witness bringing death for the testimony of the lamb, that the church is growing and spreading in that way.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: so even in spite of the world's best efforts to destroy the church, the church still manages to hang on and flourish. And And I think we have lots of historical uh, evidence of that just in the last century, you know, the, the Nazis tried to eliminate the true church in Germany. Uh, the The Soviets tried to destroy the church in Russia and the, the, Maoist Marxists in China, uh, they still can't seem to get rid of the church. So, you know, this is not some sort of uh, imagery that is completely lost to history. We are seeing it in our own time, in our own uh, historic moment, if you will.
1: And
3: I think also we, we understand that this is post-resurrection and post-ascension and so this unleashes all sorts of um, tribulation on the church, all sorts of persecution, and and yet the Christian's persecution also, as we've mentioned already, turns out to be uh, the, the punishment on the world and those who live on the earth. But I think you cannot make a decision and I think you can obviously take the wrong opinion and and we can move on to the black horse.
0: (laughs) Let's move on to the black horse.
3: You want to be on the right side of history on this one.
0: Yes, you do. You do. All right. And the black so now the black horse. Well then it's the red horse. Well then it's the red horse.
1: Oh, this that's right. Let's go on to the red horse.
3: Okay. Well, isn't this one uh pretty much state? Uh it, it gives its own self-definition. Its writer was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. He was given a great sword, which was not the gospel sword
1: to slay people. Mm-hmm. That last part was not in the text. I added that. <laughs> okay. So
3: uh, this The opposite of peace is war. Uh, so
1: this is violence of some sort, whether yes. it's personal or collective. But it seems, again,
3: the great sword, uh, speaking of widespread, uh, one quarter, is it? One quarter of the people on the earth are um, affected by
0: these judgments.
2: Mm-hmm. One third. Maybe
0: it's yeah difficult. so whatever's happening with this horse there's certainly turmoil um, yeah. that's being experienced on the earth, and isn't that the opposite of the peace um, yeah. that the gospel brings yeah well i think,
1: i think it's it's put in uh, contradistinction
2: from the gospel that without God, this is what the world would be like, I mean, it's God's restraining grace, uh, literally and figuratively here that prevents this from being the daily experience of all the earth's inhabitants. Um, and and not necessarily to, uh, throw in, uh, agreement with a particular, uh, school of interpretation here. But I mean, you know, we see the, the COVID pandemic, and there's been plenty of people who for whom that has been grist for their mill, that, oh, this must mean that that Jesus is coming back soon. But let's remember over a hundred years ago, the, the Spanish influenza wiped out uh almost a, a quarter or a third of the world's population. And and there, you know, that's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. There have been various other uh, I think the bubonic plague wiped out over a third of Europe's population.
1: Mm-hmm. So again, this is there's a a, a historical uh, spiral yeah. going on here. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. we've mentioned yeah. uh,
2: Grant Osborne's hermeneutical spiral before. You know, this is like that a, a historical spiral that. We keep coming around. We see the same things happening because God is not yet finished. He has not yet arrived at the final
1: judgment. Mm,
0: yeah, good. I like that idea of a historical spiral. You know, and not only does it signal this, the idea that you just referenced in uh, terms of God's not finished yet, but it also shows us that human beings haven't changed much no. either uh, because yeah. we continue to experience these these same things. So there is a historical reality. And and what I love about that, and I think we agree uh, on this, is that, I mean, this book is just as relevant today as it was for the first century. Um, Not that, you know, we're experiencing the same things, but we do see the the penchant, uh, the tendencies that we have that. Uh, end up resulting in the lack of peace, for example, that we see here, the wars that we're seeing, uh the pestilence and so on, the economic turmoil. Yeah.
1: And and just to add, this I I do believe that
3: chapter six, the the seals, this was happening in John's lifetime. Hmm. I don't believe he's speaking futuristically here. I think he's speaking realistically of the mm-hmm. current reality that
1: they face.
0: Sure. Good. So the next horse here is the black horse. What do we what do we see here with the black horse?
2: Well, he's uh clearly represents uh economic disruption. What's interesting is that uh, for the people of Asia Minor where the churches as the recipients, uh, they would very much recognize not only these uh, items, but where they fit into their uh, so-called daily food requirements. So, uh, you know, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Uh, These were food items that were imported into the region, either from Egypt or from the Ukraine. Uh, They did not necessarily grow naturally uh, in that area. However, uh, the call to do not damage the oil and the wine, these were items that were easily gotten a hold of in Asia Minor. So it's interesting that these two things would not be, uh, in the least, as severely
3: disrupted. So these conditions would uh, result in famine, uh, result in hardship in that way. Mm -hmm. So... You know the again the judgment touches everyone, uh, but to the one it's a uh, it's an opportunity to trust, and for the others it's an opportunity for repentance. But that doesn't seem to be forthcoming.
0: So the next horse here we have is the pale horse.
2: I think it's in uh, in Zechariah that the horse is is green, uh, but not necessarily like a, an emerald green or a forest green but a very sickly pale green. And so this is, this is death. Um, and this is a particular rider that I think most everybody really tries to go out of their way to avoid.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, and, of course, Hades follows along, uh, perhaps in representation of the grave. But in some ways, this is the scariest of them all. Because there's a finality to it if if kind of a, a sense that if if death and Hades are coming for you, there's nothing you can do
0: so these four riders or these four horsemen um are not giving us a very pleasant picture of what is uh about to happen or it is happening in in some uh, sense um right. we see war starvation plagues uh persecution especially as we get into the fifth seal Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and i i think we see
3: the how widespread it is um they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth um so you could just imagine one in four is dying uh you remember what covid is like for us now uh what it's like in india right. right 320 some thousand cases in one day uh so it's just you know going like a fire but uh here it's uh pretty widespread and so you see that the earth is definitely affected and everyone's going to have a response to it Uh, and we're not really clued in here as to what their response is yet uh, until we get to the fifth seal and we see the response in heaven. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Uh, So these are martyrs, people who have died for their faith, people who have paid the ultimate price, and now the Attention goes into heaven and to these souls that are
1: under the altar. Um, David, I you earlier spoke of a uh, an apt um, a historical parallel. Yes. Um, so
2: if we kind of expand our our resources, if you will, remembering that. This is either happening uh just shortly after the time period known as Second Temple literature, or roughly at the end if you choose an earlier date for uh revelation taking place or being written down rather um, we have within that uh realm of writing uh the four books of the Maccabees. the first one is probably the most accurate and. A narrative historical account of the, the Jewish experience under uh, the last Seleucid ruler, uh, Ptolemy, Ant- I'm sorry, not Ptolemy, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who really went out of his way to uh, bring about Greek influence throughout Jewish uh, culture uh and really despised the Jews from all accounts, uh going so far as to sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple. I mean, there wouldn't be anything more uh horrible to see or hear about as a Jew. And uh, you know, of course, people reference that to uh Daniel and the um desolation, but um second Maccabees Writes about the seven martyrs, Jewish martyrs, Uh, and these were men uh, and their mother, is my understanding. These were seven men who were horribly tortured and and suffered under uh, epiphanies, and they were constantly uh, tempted to eat unclean food, And, and so I think probably the most unclean would be pork. Pig, and so these men refused, based on their own sense of what salvation would be achieved if they held to the law and resisted breaking the law. And one brother apparently spoke up and addressed uh, Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth and, and gave this eloquent speech on all of that, and he was rewarded with having his tongue cut out and a whole lot of uh, other severe uh, treatments. I have uh, read that the uh, the more sordid and ghoulish details of their torture can be found in 4th uh, Maccabeans, but we don't need to go there. But the comparison is that this idea of martyrdom and the expectation of reward is not necessarily new to uh, revelation and and this is not to suggest that that John was borrowing from Second temple literature, but it is to say that uh this may well have been in his mind or or could have uh given him the the imagery for what he saw when the fifth seal was broken that Here are these people who suffered uh in the least terrible indignities that led to their death were far worse than that. Uh, You know, we, we read in Hebrews chapter 11 toward the end of all these different people who aren't named, who come kind of at the, at the end of the hall of fame of faith, who suffered in all sorts of ways and uh, for whom the world was not worthy. Why is that? Because they were willing to hold to their testimony of the lamb. They were willing to give their lives for a better resurrection. And, and these brothers and sisters that John sees their souls under the, under the altar are those who are waiting for that better resurrection.
0: Yeah. Well, that's quite a picture uh, of what it means for uh, us as believers to remain faithful during these uh, tumultuous times.
1: And that certainly
0: seems to be what we're seeing here in uh, in verse nine in chapter six with these martyrs. Mm -hmm. Um, As I read this, guys, I don't know what you think, but it it seems to me that these are people that have lived through these four horsemen uh, events. Mm
1: -hmm. I wholly agree. And um, we
3: I think this is the result of those four horsemen. And then we hear what they say. Uh, They cried out with a loud voice, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. Uh, What a great reminder. You you notice that they did not develop a counter-revolutionary strategy to avoid uh, persecution Mm -hmm. at the hands of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But what they do acknowledge, despite their death, they acknowledge the Lord is sovereign. He is holy. He is true. But then they do ask for vengeance. (laughs) Right. How long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And those who dwell on the earth is a catch-all
1: phrase that we'll see time and again, for those who do not and will not worship God. Um, Yeah. So, uh, what I find fascinating is that they can worship God
3: despite the fact that they lost their lives
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, for because of their faith and because of their confession.
0: Yeah, their and this following. says this says something, doesn't it, about what it means to be a disciple of Christ?
2: Yeah, well, I was just going to say, Michael, that this word should speak to us. We should have ears to hear what these martyred brothers and sisters are saying, Um, because there is an implicit trust in God's plan, even as it has already cost them their lives. And yet there is this deep heartfelt um, desire for vindication that seems to transcend the grave. That there is this expectation that God is going to bring to right all wrongs, particularly those who put them to death. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that it is, you know, we talk about vindication, but I, I, at least at this point, feel hesitant to use the word vindictive. I don't think they're being vindictive as much as they are holding to God who is holy and true.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: God is the, the object of their cry. And so I think they're calling out for his holiness and justice to be brought into its fullness, which can only happen once the final judgment has been
1: completed. So we need to remember that, yeah. do not think it strange that you should be suffering
2: like your brothers and sisters, you know
1: hmm,
2: of course, we've been inoculated against all of that because we're in America, right we don't have to worry about suffering and and judgment um, but that's a problematic perspective, isn't it it's it's a uh dare I say it, a secular progressive historical view that the world's constantly getting better and better all the time. And why should we not be the tip of that spear? Because we're the ones who have, um, you know, contributed the most to that. But I think, you know, these are the lies that we tell ourselves uh, to comfort our curved in hearts.
3: I would like to lay a little foundation here also, uh, Mm -hmm. recognizing that the first four uh, seals, they are very reflective of the depravity of man. Mm. This is what happens when man's depravity, mankind's depravity, humankind's depravity is given vent without restraint. Mm. Martyrdom. And this martyrdom, again, the, the foundation that I want to lay is that I believe that in verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice. Yes, it's worship, but it's also prayer.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, this
3: is an earnest plea, an earnest prayer. It sounds very much like the Psalms, and we're going to see it uh, in the next judgment <laughs> and, we're, and and in the next two. We're going to see it in the next two seals, but just to lay the foundation here, this is their prayer and yes, it's a problematic prayer in that they're saying, uh, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So, but it, but it's not vindictive, but it's right. And they, they understand that God's justice cannot be denied and that this that has happened to them will have to be accounted for.
2: I, I appreciate you bringing up that aspect that this is prayer and, and it there are parallels in the Psalms. And, you know, that reminds me that God is so broad-shouldered that he can handle even our klutziest of prayers, Mm -hmm. even our wrong-headed prayers God can handle. Uh, And that's not to suggest that the prayers of the the saints under the altar are wrong. Uh, It's to say that at least on this side uh, of things, that we are fully capable of of praying wrongly in some aspects of our prayers, but what makes our prayers right is that is the one to whom we're directing them. That we can trust God to utilize even our our or clumsy clums, clumsily worded prayers. Um, as I say, as my tongue is clumsily working in my mouth. Um, and that is such an important thing. I think we need to keep in mind, you know, maybe we could add that to part of the frame through which we, we view, uh, Revelation is not just the application thereof, but the specifics of this attitude of, of worship and prayer throughout. Because what's going to get us through times of tribulation? It's the Lord. It's his grace. It's his mercy. Um, it's not going to be our own wisdom and Figuring out how to survive—it's going to be God's goodness. The one who is holy and true is going to deliver us to the other side, one way or the other. He may allow us to go through terrible tribulation, or he may allow us to enter in peacefully. We we don't know. We don't get to write uh, the ends of our story,
1: so to speak.
3: I know one of your big questions is: What does this say about
1: a Christian disciple? A follower of Jesus, um, they recognize God's sovereignty, but they
3: also recognize that God will not allow wickedness
1: uh, to uh, for, for nothing to happen. Mm-hmm. That, that He will, he, he yeah. There's my southern hillbilly
3: coming
0: out. He will judge and avenge. Yeah. Yeah, so they recognize he is a just God. Right. And they're calling and they on. pray
3: to him. You know, we're you know, Christian disciples are people who pray. And I don't necessarily think that their prayers are disordered here, because I think I told you I was laying a foundation for what comes later. So mm-hmm. I don't think that I think their prayer is perfectly in line with the character of God. They see what, what we don't see, and again, this is not linear. You know, they say, how long, O oh Lord? And that's usually after, uh, you know, after someone says, hey, it's gone on for a long time now. You know, mm-hmm. they reckon, hey, God, when is your justice going to show up?
0: i like to this additional um, description of th- these disciples, that they were people um, who were founded on the word of God and people who uh, witnessed uh um, mm-hmm. They had a testimony of their faith to others. And again, in verse 9, uh, they had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. I, I think that's a, a, additional uh, pieces of this beautiful portrait of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Someone who mm-hmm. trusts in God's sovereignty, who mm-hmm. relies on his justice. They are also people who stand on his word and continue to bear witness to the world. Uh, even as they go through these very difficult uh, times.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Great uh, descriptions and encouragement for us as we think and evaluate our own lives um, as followers of Christ.
3: Another element as we move on to verse 11, uh, they are not told that they are going to escape. In fact, they are told just the opposite. Mm-hmm. They said, uh, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and
1: sisters should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I read that and it, it chokes me up to, to realize,
3: man, this, this is not playing church. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: This is the real deal. Great. Don, that's a great example and a great reminder for us, and and perhaps a good point for us to pause our discussion on these first uh, seven seals, this first septet, and uh, continue on our next uh, edition of uh, Rediscovering Jesus Through Revelation. We're grateful for you who are joining us either through the video platform or on the podcast, and uh, we welcome your feedback As you can tell we're three guys trying to do theology and community we don't have all the answers but we certainly are working toward uh, trying to to understand uh, what god is saying for us today through this uh, beautiful book so feel free to uh, interact with us on the discussion forum on our facebook page Um, we would love to hear from you and so for don and david and myself um, we look forward to joining you next week as we rediscover Jesus through Revelation.